It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the main. And there she is. Try it this way. <laughs> oh boy! Uh, did you you could did you try it the other way? Will it not stay up? The... Goodness, I have AirPods. Um. Oh my goodness. Um. I can't use my keyboard that way. I'll I'll fiddle with it. I'll fiddle with it. And and I and I and I'll tell you Hello. something. Hello, good morning. Uh um Peggy is having technical difficulties on her end. Nothing is working there for her. Uh and I just got a call from our first guest um via who's in Greece and we checked out everything. Everything's perfect up to uh uh you know 15 minutes ago and I can see that he's frozen on the screen and I'm and we and I don't know why. Um, so uh, this is how we're off to a start I today. I guess it's one of those. It's one of those mornings um, or something. I I, I, don't, I guess. Um, I don't wait, know. Wait, wait, there and he is. I oh yeah, I can see him now, and he's waving. Okay, so he's back. And uh, welcome to the show, everybody. This is uh, technology, but you know, and, and, and here's the thing that is so frustrating that it was all working like a charm like five minutes ago just just brilliant and uh although i can uh, uh uh let's 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 see if our our guest is uh there i'm gonna do a quick check with you uh julian hoffman are you with us i am with you uh i've actually strangely been with you the whole time i could hear and see everything you were doing but we just lost something at this end <laughs> so it's been a kind of I felt like I've existed in a parallel universe for the last 20 minutes, watching the world unfold, and I was unable to kind of get into it. Uh, and I and see Peggy is sort of frozen there as well. Yeah, she's so, frozen. Yes, she's welcome a- to our digital world. Oh, lordy, lordy, lordy. Um, uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Julian in just a, a couple of minutes. Um, he has written um, uh, a marvelous book called Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Our Wild places and i have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time and i bet peggy has too um and we both read the book and it it would be a shame if she couldn't get into uh the conversation but i'm betting oh and there she is again 
Okay, go for it. Next Saturday, March 20th, from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., a sure sign of spring, is the Chicago Community Gardeners Association 8th Annual Conference, which this year is a virtual conference. It's called Connections Through Gardening, Plants, People, and the Environment. And we will be there. The Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak and Gata and Basil will all be there um, for a lunch session, actually talking about the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards and what we're going to be doing this year for the virtual gardening video challenge. So you can go to chicagocommunitygardens.org slash conference. Registration is $25 for adults, $15 for students. I understand there's some scholarships available. So head on over to chicagocommunitygardens.org slash conference and check it out. Uh, yeah, we're very excited about that. And we're very excited uh, to be promoting uh, for 2021, the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards 60-second Garden Video Challenge. Slightly different this year. Uh, we uh, we instituted it last year during the pandemic because we couldn't go out and visit people in their own gardens. Um, and folks sent us a bunch of videos of their gardens, which were wonderful. But we got it started late. So this year, we thought, you know what? And this is a complaint always about garden award ceremonies and garden walks and that sort of thing is that they always there's a there's a tyranny of the summer and late summer um often you don't get to see gardens and i have people tell me this all the time they say oh you should have seen my garden in may uh well this time you're going to have a chance yeah. to do You'd that have seen what i did last year would have been perfect yeah. that's right because we're going to have an uh, a, a spring session and a summer session Two months in spring, it will be May, June, and then July, August for the summer session. And uh, woohoo! It, yay! And uh, um, <laughs> and, and I'm still trying to figure out how to turn my camera sideways. So if I just suddenly go, if, well, if <laughs> if 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 your camera suddenly goes uh, sideways, it'll be something like this. <laughs> Uh, and there she is, sideways, and uh, and we lost. Uh, we didn't lose Julian. Now uh, that's the way the the macro <laughs> He's is. He's laughing. I know, and I'm glad. I'm, I'm laughing, but I've vanished. I've yeah, vanished. You, you have vanished. Uh, I didn't want people to have to stare at you as you were drinking your tea uh, in in Greece. Um, and the other thing we wanted to talk about. So anyway, uh, uh, and the website again, Peggy, for people to sign up for CCGA conference. ChicagoCommunityGardens.org conference and you can go to their facebook page as well chicago community gardens um association so uh the second thing we want to talk about is also happening next weekend uh and that's from our friend oh, scott says the llama took him the, the <laughs> uh, oh no the what all right uh, the other thing that's going on is from our friends at City Grange in the city of Chicago. And we give them a ding. Uh, it's the Great Grow Along. And that happens next weekend, a three-day virtual garden festival designed to help gardens gardeners learn, connect, and grow, which is what City Grange is all about. 40-plus sessions in six tracks. And there's going to be a track for you. From edible gardening to pollinators and plants to DIY landscaping to urban gardening 
to houseplants to dig deeper, which is organic gardening, secrets to healthy soil, composting, permaculture, medicinal plants, and more. Uh, and I mean, it's just a chock full of information that you're wa- going to want to know about. So the way to uh, find out about this is there's a couple of places you can go. You can go to citygrange.com or you can go to greatgrowalong.com. Uh, either one, and and you'll find out about the great grow along, and and we want to. Uh, <laughs> I love seeing your hand up there like this. It's like okay. Uh, I, I if you saw my setup with with the stand, it's on. There's I will have to hand hold it to have it horizontal. Are, are you going to try? Come on, are you going to try to flip the camera? Is that what you're going to do, or not? That's what I'm trying to do, but I have to find some way. To keep it a, a steady, to prop it up. The prop it up. All right. Well, you can go away and look for hours. stuff. And uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we want to uh, encourage folks to take advantage of the great grow along as well. Uh, there's a there's a small fee for being uh, involved in that. Where uh, CCGA, I believe, is all free, isn't it, uh, Peggy? Um, CCGA is $25. Oh, it is $25. So small yes. fee. I'm glad you, you mentioned that. Uh, so both ridiculously small fees, uh, to get involved with these, um, great events. So that's how we wanted to start the show. And, <laughs> and this is actually not how we wanted to start the show, but without further ado, let's bring in our guest, uh, author, uh, and naturalist Julian Hoffman. Uh, again, author of uh, Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Our Wild Places. Good morning, uh, and I should say good afternoon to you, Julian. Good afternoon uh, from here, from northern Greece, and good, very, very good morning to you both, Mike and Peggy. Pleasure to be here. I'm glad we got through some of the technical hitches, even though we'd started off brilliantly, uh, and it's a pleasure to join you this morning. <laughs> it's it's a pleasure to have you on the show, and, I'm, and, and I want to start with uh, folks who might be scratching their heads and saying, um, that doesn't sound like uh, a, a Greek accent. That's not your native country. Uh, can you give us a little bit about no. your background? Yes. Uh, I was born in the northeast of England. I uh, grew up in southern Ontario, so not all that far from you. Oh, my goodness. Returned to the UK, and I've now lived in the mountains of northern Greece for a little over two decades now. Uh, and why? So that's... <laughs> Why we effectively, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about a book today and, and you know, that'll sort of uh, emerge from the conversation. But we moved here because of a book. Uh, my wife and I were living in the middle of uh, downtown London, had been for many, many years. And we're really, really keen and desperate to kind of move out of that space and to find a different life. And we discovered a book written by a wonderful Greek biologist called Yorgos Katsidrakis, which was a book about this region there where we now live. These two lakes set in a bowl of mountains uh, in northern uh, Greece, right on the borders with Albania and North Macedonia. We read the book. Over the course of an evening, I'm quite sure there was a bottle of wine, if not two, consumed alongside (laughs) it, and decided that very same night that we would move to this village of 150 people, and 20 years later, we're still here. All right. So the power of books, the power of the word. That's unbelievable. Sight unseen. Sight unseen. We, We arrived here with these great rucksacks front and back carrying whatever we thought we might need in this this new life that we were hoping to forge and and that was it and with the 
extraordinary hospitality, generosity, and help of people we met here within days of arriving, we were able to put down roots and, and build a life for ourselves here. So it's the thankfulness to, and the gratitude, I suppose, to people who reach out and who are willing to, um, to graciously host you and to welcome you into their community. And that's been an enormous learning lesson in many ways over the last two decades. And that is so interesting. Uh, it, I think for a lot of people, it, it, they're, it, it's one of those there are two kinds of people in the world things, those who move around all the time and those who could mm. never possibly uproot themselves from their, their homeland or their home area let us say i'm a midwest guy myself um Mm -hmm. and uh, i grew up in detroit uh but chicago is detroit uh on steroids basically so it's it's not it's not it's not a whole lot different from detroit uh, in many many ways it's still midwestern and it has that same flavor but uh to to move from i'm from chicago and lived here my whole life too so yeah right uh, I, I, I even uh, when I was an actor, um, uh, and folks said, "Oh, you got to go to uh, L.A." Uh, I thought about it for a while, and I thought, "No, I don't. I really don't want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of like it here, and uh, I think this is where I'm going to stay." So, uh, kudos to you for uh, <laughs> reading a book and picking up. Uh, Thank you. It was yeah, you know, it was you know, it was a great leap of faith. But I think those leaps of faith they are sometimes rewarded with um enormous possibilities and we were we were very fortunate very, and very i am fortunate and i imagine that part of it was um your background as a naturalist uh when you saw the kind of territory you're going to be moving into you thought i can uh, well it's not do do your work better it's just be inspired perhaps uh, a mm-hmm. little bit well curiously much of that work emerged from arriving here. My background wasn't as a naturalist, a naturalist at all. Um, I was a painter and decorator in London in my last few years of living there. So, you know, this whole journey here enor- enabled another kind of journey to unfold from within. So it was, it was sort of a response to this quite extraordinary landscape place. You know, you've got three countries that come together around these two remarkable bodies of water. And it was in response to the place itself in many ways that I began really writing and looking at the natural world more closely as a way of trying to understand what this home meant and what it meant for the wildlife communities here, the people that live here, its histories, it's those great layers of ecology that are kind of bound together with the land. So it was really in response to that, that that my kind of professional life emerged, I suppose. Uh, And that's even more impressive that uh, it wasn't uh, your background at that point because uh, you're, well, you, You've obviously always been a writer. Uh, that <laughs> that shines through in your book. Thank you. What, well, this was else? the second book, and uh, Irreplaceable was my second book, and the first one was called the, the Small Heart of Things. And that was a kind of meditation on home, really, and what it means. You know, you mentioned earlier, Mike, about some people move, some people tend to stay, and that book explored a lot of those ideas, a kind of reflection on home and what it might mean to be at home in the world in a greater sense, how we might connect with not only the places we live in, but the places we pass through, pass through, sorry, and find and let's say forge deeper attachments with the natural world by paying very, very close attention, often to the smallest of things around us. That was the kind of theme of that book, really. Uh, the and, intimacy of the smallness of the natural world. And you, and 
that's a great segue because that comes out in your latest book, Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Our mm-hmm. Wild Places, because when folks think about the wild places that need to be saved, and you address some of these when you talk about coral mm-hmm. reefs and when you talk about jungles with with tigers and elephants uh, in India, uh, you talk about great spaces that that need to be saved, but you also dive into yeah. the small spaces. And this is a book that is going to uh, resonate with a lot of people, with community gardeners, for example, because yeah. you, you tell the story of, of several areas, uh, urban areas, one in Glasgow um, and, and others, uh, community gardens, some that get saved and some that do not get saved, uh, sadly. Right. Um, and tell us about the uh, the origin and the genesis uh, of this book, given that you go to so many different places around the world, and they're not all exactly the same sort of situation, but they are. Mm. You, but you do meet the same kind of people who are determined to make change. Um, yeah, excellent question. I mean, you know, the book really was written as a way to explore both presence and loss in the world around us. You know, we, we live in an age of loss. You know, we are losing species and places at a terrible, terrible, terrifying rate. Um, but I didn't really want to write an elegy. I'm not that interested in elegies in the sense because it's the way we hang on to what we have, the way we retain what matters that is of far greater importance to me. So I wanted, I suppose, to write a book that's really about the spirit of resistance, how we... Um, draw that line in the sand about what really is vital and matters. And of course, we're slowly emerging from a pandemic, a pandemic that, of course, was essentially caused by the destruction of wild habitats. But I think most of us, if we were to answer honestly, would say that those closer places, those, whether it's community gardens, whether it's the small, the familiar, the intimate, the local has meant a great deal to us, you know, during these periods of various lengths in lockdown. And, you know, countless studies have now shown how important our connection and contact with the natural world is. Mental health, physical health, emotional health, all of these things, um, particularly for, for children. And yet, you know, more than half of the world's population lives in cities. So when we talk about wild places, I think it's important to move away from seeing only those kind of totemic wild spaces, you know, the vast mountain ranges of Alaska, for example, or uh, the expanses of the coral of the, you know, the Australian Barrier Reef, because there are also wild places in the midst of our towns and our cities and our suburban landscapes. And these are just as vital on a really small scale level. But of course, for those communities around them and the wildlife that dwells within them, they're of critical importance and critical value to really retain them. And so I wanted to, I suppose I wanted to be democratic in my approach to look at wild places, the large, the vast, there's some huge places in the book, but the book necessarily telescopes in on those small nearby places because they are so important to us. All right, I'm going to start with, I, I, <laughs> I have a, a bunch of photos that I was going to uh, put up here. I'm not sure that I will get to most of them. Uh, I will get to a few because they represent some things that you've talked about in your book. And this is, whoops, mm-hmm. and, I, and I knew that was going to happen at oh, one yes. place. Um, uh, tell me what we're seeing here, uh, Julian. So you're seeing the absolutely beautiful European nightingale, you know, one of the 
most celebrated and astonishing birds found anywhere in the on the planet. You know, it's a, a bird that's been celebrated by poets, by writers, by composers. Um, and its range, its tonal range, its ability to create new songs from these vast selections that it has in its own repertoire is simply spellbinding. And of course, it primarily sings at night, not exclusively actually, but so you can sit out in a completely dark valley and you've got this crescendo of music around you. So that's the nightingale, um, which does very, very well down here where I live in Southern Europe. But where I write about it in Britain, it's an extraordinarily threatened species now because it's declined by 90% in just the last 50 years alone. And you write about uh, the efforts to save uh, an area of of hedges um, that uh, protect the – have been served as habitat to the nightingale, Mm. but uh, a lot of people don't consider the land – that the hedges uh, exist on as that important. Um, and a lot of the uh, t- uh, the stories you, you tell in the book, it's often, well, we need this highway to go through here, or we need this development uh, to come in. This gas station. Right. And this, yeah, yeah it's not that, imp- this land is degraded uh, anyway, and yet it, it's hold- messy. it holds a special... Yes. Uh, um, resonance for the people there. Uh, Many people have lived their whole lives as we talk about a sense of place and and people staying in one place. People, and and in um, Great Britain, you've got a thousand year head start on us here in the United States because you talk about places that got changed by the Romans and then maybe got changed during the Middle Ages. Uh, and now yeah. we're dealing, you know, and even at that time, they were degrading the land. But now looking back 600 or 800 years later, this is something yeah. to remember and to keep. Uh, and, and that's yeah. the point you make is that there's no such thing as what's raw nature. What does it, that actually mean on yeah. our planet? Yeah, I mean, that, that last part of yours, you know, there's very little that is untouched by humans, you know, in the world around us, even if you go to the remotest parts of the Arctic archipelago, northern Canada, let's say, there's still atmospheric disturbance there. You know, there is literally, you may not find the kind of human residue or traces literally on the land in many parts of it, but it's certainly been touched by, you know, our influence. And most of our landscapes have been to some to a lesser and larger degree. But as Peggy mentioned, you know, the, the gas station. And, you know, there are, there, what I discovered in the course of writing this book was that there are some places, extraordinary places, ancient places that are threatened by the most crass developments. You know, and one was an 850-year-old ancient woodland in northern England in which developers wished to put a gas station and a petrol station, as we would say in the UK, uh, you know, motorway services, you know, the big car park on top of it. And I wanted to explore what, if that proposal went through, what do we lose? What do we strip away from the surface of the earth? The 850 years of accumulated ecologies, but also human connections and the connections of communities to this place. And so I really wanted to write also about how we value the world around us, what measure do we utilize in ascertaining what is of worth? And of course, we inhabit an economic system, 
that's supported by a political framework that's heavily invested in the ruination of the living world, that sees the exploitation of both natural resources and people as part of the equation of profit. And so I really wanted to look at what are we trading away for the construction of a development here? And it led me down some paths into profound beauty of these places, but also of terrifying losses as well. What we're willing, at least at a governmental or development level, uh, to give up in exchange uh, for development. And the terms that are often used for those places uh, are things like the words progress, uh, improvement. Uh, I mean, what, what what's an improvement? Economic what's, development. Right. Well, and and yeah. I was looking at the place called Gwent Levels. That's another one. That's in Wales. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what Gwent Levels was. I, I, and on many of these places yeah. you write about, I'd never heard of. And they're stories yeah. that probably most people have not heard of. Yes, you've, you might have yeah. heard uh, 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 about the, the jungles of India and, and uh, the, the effort to save the megafauna there, or charismatic mm-hmm. fauna, I guess uh, we call them. Um, but you don't hear of Gwent Levels, which is a, a, a series of reens. I mean, what's a reen? Yeah. You know, folks don't know what a reen is. It's a channel. It's a. Yeah. It's it's uh, uh, it's been dug. It was dug hundreds of years ago, and now supports yeah. all kinds of wildlife. Absolutely. Um, yeah, nicely, nicely stated there, because the reen is just the, the Welsh word for a watery ditch. And on the surface, it sounds like, well, that's nothing. <laughs> but many of those reens were actually dug by hand by medieval monks across this uh, extraordinarily flat landscape abutting the Severn Estuary in southern Wales. And over the course of centuries, because each reen is subtly different because it wasn't constructed by machine, but rather by human hand. Each one is subtly different, either in gradient, in the slope of the bank, in the quality of the soil, ever so slightly from the next one. So it supports a vastly different range of aquatic invertebrate species than the one next to it does. So all together, you've got this extraordinary, there are thousands of miles of reens on the Gwent levels. And all together, they form this remarkable mosaic of profound diversity in, in, in terms of, of water species, all there just under the surface of the water. So you might say, well, what's a watery ditch? Well, a watery ditch, each and every one was an entire world. It's it's fabulous when you read about it, especially the children who come and they take the jars and they, and they pull out yeah. the, uh, the, a little bit of water from the watery ditch. And then they take it into the classroom yeah. and take a look at the life in those jars. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they learn and they understand the quiet of those places. I think yes. that's, that's underestimated in all of the natural areas of our world, the quiet. That uh, we are um, a species that's terrified of quiet. We want uh, music in all of our stores. We want the TV on uh, all the time. Um, we hear the traffic going by uh, and when we experience quiet, it's, it's come to the place where quiet is jarring to us. Yeah. And what was really fascinating about that specific episode is that I'd gone to the Gwent Levels, a, a remarkable place, completely protected in law, but still there was a plan to put 15 miles of high, highway or motorway right through it, six lanes through these rings. And I spent time with a, um, 
uh, environmental education class, a group of nine and 10 and 11 year olds. And we went pond dipping together. And I must say, I mean, I loved it possibly even more than them. And I was very reluctant to relinquish my net at the end. You know, it was just like <laughs> being a kid all over myself. And it was fantastic. Yeah. You know, finally the teacher said, time to hand in the nets. And I was like, but do we have to? Um, <laughs> and so I, I decided to speak to the kids about their connection to this place that was threatened. And because I didn't want them to sort of corroborate one another's stories as kids might do if they overhear, I spoke to them individually as we walked back to the nature reserves offices. And what profoundly moved me is that despite keeping them separate, they still gave me the exact same answers. The first answer, and here we go, here's the Gwent levels, wonderful. Their first answer wasn't that much of a surprise because they said that they adored the Gwent levels because it's where they had contact with the bugs and the birds and the bees and they got their hands money and they got to go pond dipping and run around through the field. So that wasn't a huge surprise. But their second answer, which each and every child articulated privately in just a slightly different way from the other really floored me because they said that they loved the quiet and the peacefulness of the place. One boy said that when his parents were at home, if they were arguing, he could come down here and it was quiet and peaceful. Another one said that it was really silent when she was down here. Another boy said that when he was on the Gwent levels, he could just be with his thoughts. And what I learned from that is that we inhabit a 21st 21st century world with evolving technologies, you know, structured playtime for a lot of children. Um, And yet what those kids passed on to me is that at the deepest level, they sometimes need nothing more than that extraordinarily animating quiet of the natural world. And I think we we ignore those needs at our peril and the peril of our children and our grandchildren, because I think we have been to some degree led to believe that we have to fill those lives, but actually it's much the opposite in many ways. And what they were clearly stating as we spent time there was that that quiet, I need that quiet. And that quiet of course would have been entirely destroyed if 15 miles of motorway were plowed through those protected levels. And to the, uh, I, I was reading uh, uh, about that uh, photo I put up there came from a story in The Guardian, and they were talking about the uh, the politicians who were proposing it and you know, giving the party, um, and it was Labor Party, and I said, it, it, it don't matter. It doesn't matter yeah. what, which party it is. Yeah. Who cares? Uh, this yeah. is such a bad idea. Anybody knows that you create, yeah. uh, you, you do that kind of construction, it causes so much collateral damage, and that's what people don't understand. They see the, the strips of highway, and they go, well, it's not that big a cross. Think about putting it yeah. together yeah. And, and what you destroy. Yeah. Or, or, or we can just move it. That's the other side of it. We could just yes. move it. Yeah, and, yeah, they, and that's, that's a particularly – sorry, Mike. No, 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 you go. I think that's, you know, what Peggy said, that we can just move it. That's a particularly insidious development in in sort of uh, planning proposals recently. I'm not sure what stage you're at in, in the United States right now, but certainly in, in Europe, this idea that these places can be replaced, that we can offset them, that we can, um, you know, that we can mitigate for them through compensation of other 
sites yeah. of natural value. Yeah, you, you which mentioned really that. really misses the point. Yeah, you talk about yeah. that they make proposals and they say, oh, okay, well, we'll take away this uh, <laughs> treasured land and we'll give you 16 acres here or, or hectares or whatever yeah. you want to use. And uh, it's not the same. You can't do that. You can't. And, and oh, and we'll plant trees there. Well, you know, as if they're, as if to say, we'll, we'll put create. Some saplings in, yes. Yeah, we'll create an old growth forest yeah. for you in about a half a year. How's that? Um, not going to happen. Yeah. You know, if you follow that through to its, you know, I think many of us, especially when we were students, we probably had a, a print of a Van Gogh on our walls and our dorms or wherever it might be. We all know that that's not the original. It looks nice in the walls, but it's not the original. And it's no different when we talk about we'll get rid of this old growth forest or this ancient woodland in northern England, and we'll give you something else. It's not the same thing. There is no equivalency between those two. That doesn't mean that we can't create and restore landscapes, because that's also vital importance. But this mm -hmm. the idea that we can exchange, that they're tradable, is, is really impoverished in terms of its thinking. Well... My plans for this interview have all gone out the window, uh, photos out of order. So as you can see, the, all the macros uh, are not working, and uh, we're already uh, five minutes behind our commercial break. Uh, this is the way these things go, but it's okay. I'm really enjoying this. We need to get back to it. It's uh, Julian Hoffman, author of Repla uh, Irreplaceable. Irreplaceable, that's what you yeah, are. Not replaceable. Yeah, right. <laughs> irreplaceable and that's why i called the blog post that i put up it's irreplaceable in every way which is my homage uh to uh, nat king cole and also to <laughs> julian hoffman it's the mike novak show with peggy malecki whoa let's get to this well i hope you stick around at this time of year we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants so help them thrive the plants you're viewing were treated with leafzyme, a foliage spray designed to activate beneficial microbes already present on the leaves. A spritz every few weeks promotes growth-enhancing microorganisms that process dust and other particles into nutrition that indoor plants can absorb through their leaves for beautiful and vigorous growth. Go to blazing-star.com and check out their BioGarden line for home gardeners. From small boat fishermen to your dinner table with safe, free, no-contact delivery, Sitka Salmon Shares brings premium wild Alaska seafood to your door. They're a community-supported fishery offering shares just like your local CSA. All fish is wild-caught in season with respect for the limits of the ocean. Line-caught and traceable to their fleet. Use promo code NOVAK25 for $25 off the first month of a share. Go to SitkaSalmonShares.com slash N-O-W-A-K. Hello from Happy Leaf. This is BJ Miller, the horticulturist here on staff. The best way we can help you be successful with indoor gardening is to provide you with a really great grow light. There are a lot of choices on the market and it can be extremely confusing to decide what you need. Our goal here at Happy Leaf is to provide you with a light that lasts a very long time and makes your plants really happy. We have several satisfied customers, including our friends Mike Novak and Peggy Malecki, because we have specifically designed a light that is versatile, it's very effective, and it is extremely simple to use. Our lights are perfect for seed starting, but you can do so much more, especially these months of the winter. You can supply yourself with your own leafy greens and herbs, grow lots of different types of vegetables, keep your small fruit trees thriving, and your houseplants will think you've sent them for a day at the spa. 
Uh, I wanted I wanted to throw this in. Alan! 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 Al! Alan! <laughs> and I and I know I can get away with that clip because uh, Julian uh, is familiar with it. I mean, uh, what, what naturalist in the world? It's a would, it is a classic. It's a classic. <laughs> it is absolutely a classic. Here's something that's unless not, you're an Alan, of course. Yeah, right. Alan. Uh, of, what? Alan. Alan. <laughs> Alan. 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 Al. Alan. I want to play something for you, Julian. Uh, you inspired me to. Uh, to do this, uh, and I think you'll recognize what this is. Wow. It's one of the stories you tell, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? tell in, in the book about Beatrice Harrison, uh, a world-renowned cellist, and how she would go out and play, and uh, the uh, nightingales would sing, and that's what you're hearing. Now, the next part of this is a little different. Mm-hmm. This is from May 1942. So what happened is the BBC... Yeah, why don't you tell the story while we're listening to this, and then uh, we, we can explain yeah, what this is. of course. So the BBC began a tradition in 1924, the recording we just heard with Beatrice Harrison and her Surrey Garden, and it was the first live animal broadcast, I believe, in the world, where she played live her cello with the nightingale that sang. And the BBC continued that tradition right through until the year 1942, at the height of the Second World War, uh, until the BBC immediately cut the feed, because what you're about to start hearing is an RAF squadron of bombers departing a Surrey airbase on a bombing run over Germany that drops an enormous payload over northern German towns. And they cut the feed so that any German uh, communications officers didn't pick up, um, who, were, who were listening, didn't relay the fact that a bombing raid was coming. But this archive recording still exists. And on and one it, side of the disc, you hear the bombers departing, and on the back, you have them returning, minus, I think, it's 11 bombers who never made the journey home. Mm-hmm. And it's just... And that was... Uh, the contrast right of the having the singing nightingales and the war effort um and the art the art of uh beatrice harrison um but but this is just um it gives me goosebumps yeah yeah to hear the nightingales and the war planes overhead so i mean i've got another five minutes of that i could play which is just uh, uh i the other day i i was playing it and i just sat mesmerized listening to that yeah, it's a profoundly moving piece of music in 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 many senses of the word you know of course when those bombers returned there was a german city that was flattened and in flames there were a number of bomber planes that never returned and throughout that of course there was a nightingale still singing for mate which had only just arrived from its sojourn in africa from the winter and had arrived back at its breeding grounds in southern england in spring and it's not necessarily related to 
the loss of our nightingales, but it is the war. The war damages uh, so many uh, natural areas as well. Anytime you have a war, you're going to have a loss of biodiversity. You're going to have a loss of species. Uh, but in particular, yep. that that segment just shows our connection to yeah. these animals. I mean, Alan, <laughs> Alan aside. Yeah. The, yes, Peggy. I was going to say, and, and it also brings, ties in the connection between war areas or armament areas, armory areas, such as you bring up where the, the nightingale is and where other things are in England, um, as being preserved. Mm-hmm. That's right. Of areas yeah, you know, for there's... the military preserving, which is, is yeah. so... Um, yeah, there are that. there are military bases in in not only in the UK but in many parts of the world actually that have retained a flavor of the past in many ways because their lands haven't been pressurized by other economic factors such as road mm-hmm. building, uh, strip mall construction, um, industrialization, and so they hang on often to plant communities, invertebrate communities, sometimes bird communities that have fallen out of favor with the wider countryside because those conditions no longer exist. And so it is, that's a kind of strange, it's odd to get your head around in many ways, you know, that complexity that sometimes military bases harbor uh, a a diversity that doesn't exist outside the perimeter of those um, bases. And that, uh, has happened. It happened a lot. You've mentioned several in in uh, in Great Britain that are like that. Uh, we have a similar situation here uh, in the United States, but a bit, a tad different, um, with Medewin National Tall Grass Prairie, which is one of the yeah. places you write about. Again, not everything is in uh, Great Britain, folks. Uh, uh, Although you you know you do go to your home country, you go to the well there and and write about several of uh, the efforts there. But as I mentioned before, you go to Indonesia, uh, you go to India, right. you go to uh, North America, to uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Great Plains. Um, and I have a surprise for you here. Uh, you you weren't expecting this, and, uh, and actually the technology I believe is. Uh, cooperating <laughs> right right now. So let's hope so. Let's bring in somebody who introduced you to that area, and that's Arthur <laughs> Pearson. Wow, <laughs> a big digital hug from here. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Arthur. How are you, Arthur? Hi, Wonderful to see you. How are you? I'm very very well. It's fantastic to see you. Arthur, as you know, is really my guide into understanding an amazing place, and I'm so internally grateful. Wow, good to see you. As much as we love nature, I'm enamored this morning of technology that brings us together, you know, across the globe uh, to (laughs) have this this lovely catch-up with you. It seems like forever since we've been watching that cold, lovely prairie out there. I thought I was... 2016, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought I would sucker punch you, uh, Julian, and bring in Arthur Pearson, uh, who helped, who who introduced you pretty much to the Medewin National Tallgrass Prairie, yes. didn't he? Absolutely. 
Um, yeah, I owe I owe that introduction very much to to Arthur's really defined way of understanding places and their importance and their importance to people and their importance to to communities of plants and it was just wonderful and that place that 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 Arthur showed me it really opened me to something else it opened me to the possibilities of restoration and you know a lot of this book is about preserving and protecting but i think that's only one path we need a kind of parallel path to follow and protection and preserving is one and the restoration of degraded habitats is another one and the medewan tallgrass national prairie was a remarkable example of just what's possible if i'm really honest when we act with urgency passion concern and and vigor and really try to be part of a wider world i think would you agree there arthur i i would um and, and one of the things that is exciting for me is to bring new people to medewin and again your voice julian amplifies and accentuates and puts a big important exclamation point on the why do we do this the how do we do this uh, reminds it, it takes it to a new plane of understanding. And for me, it's not just about the ecological restoration that comes mm -hmm. as a result of this, but it's, it's, it's the healing of the human heart that we yeah. have extraordinary capacity to degrade, to destroy. And we were talking military, or you guys were talking military yeah. before we came in. And this was a place, Medewin was the former Joliet Arsenal, which made just unconscionable amounts of armaments, which were important to win world wars. I mean, not denying the importance of that, but it was a place that generated things of destruction on a massive scale. And then the irony, the loveliness, the hopefulness that such a place then could be a place of reclamation and restoration and your voice in championing that and seeing it, helping us to see it, um, I've just so appreciated your illuminating this space for us in a way that sometimes when we're in the trenches and doing it, we don't have the luxury of seeing. So again, your voice has just been um, so so wonderful and so valued. Thank you for that. Thank you. That's very, very kind to say. You know, I think, you know, along with the, the Wetlands Initiative, who I've gotten to know uh, in the last year or so, and, and at the time, Arthur, you were working for the, the, was it the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, I think, that was, correct. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it opened me to these, you know, extraordinary organizations as well that are literally um, digging in. And I say that with the great emphasis on the word digging in, because it was, I remember Arthur showing me the seed beds, because of course, one of the great problems in prairie restoration of, is that there's so little of it left. You know, you're speaking, I know Arthur isn't today because he's moved, but you're speaking from Illinois State with 0.0% of its native grasslands. And of course, it's colloquially known as the prairie state. Um, and it's that diminishing in a way that the seed bases, you know, they're almost non-existent. And I remember Arthur leading me through the areas that he was explaining. These were the seed beds. And I'll always remember you talking about, you know, stuffing seeds like this kind of farmer of the olden days, you know, in your pockets. And But it really came clear to me how it's the, it's those individual actions that are tethered 
alongside other actions with other people that eventually grow into this larger possibility for transformation that we can all dig in but it's by making these connections by making these forging these attachments that we ultimately we move forward together in a much more potent and powerful and i would argue meaningful way and seeing the prairie and seeing how volunteers would actively remove invasives and would you know sow the seeds and would encourage and nurture plants was just beautiful in every way of the word uh, I should mention at, at this point that uh, Arthur is a friend of the show, uh, and and Arthur and I have known each other back <laughs> from our acting days. Uh, yeah. I I I, to, I told him on on the phone the other day. I said, Arthur, you were the successful one. Okay, I was the guy. <laughs> I was the guy who who never got the commercials, uh, and uh, I'm not sure why that was. Maybe it was the hair. I think it was the hair actually. Uh, but um, uh, our Arthur has been on the show to talk about his book, Force of Nature, uh, which chronicles yes. the life, uh, life of conservationist George Fell. Um, and now you've become the CEO of the Roger Tory Peterson Institute. Can you tell us just a little? I'll give you a chance to have a little bit of a plug, uh, Arthur, here. What, sure. what is the uh, Roger Tory Peterson Institute? So I have transplanted to the opposite side of the Great Lakes, we are here in Jamestown, New York, which is the hometown of Roger Torrey Peterson. And I think most people know the famous Peterson Field Guides, those beloved guides that took you into the field and revolutionized nature study for people all over the world. Well, the Roger Torrey Peterson Institute is a living embodiment of the field guide. We exhibit world-class art by Roger Torrey Peterson and other master artists. Mm -hmm. And we use this art to tell a powerful story, not just about the beauty of nature, but also, and I think this is interesting in line with Julian's book, about the challenges that nature face. But we're not stopping there. We can also tell the story that humans, while we've been the problem in some ways, we can also be a big part of the solution. <laughs> nature depends upon us, and we can, in fact, make a positive difference. Some so ways? That's what we do here at the Some RTBI. ways? Some ways? Uh, uh, you know, it, it's hard to imagine a species that is more dangerous than Homo sapiens. It it's just is. Um, all right. Well, we only have a few more minutes. You guys are both here. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention, and I'm not going to get, I'm, I may pop in a few photos here uh, to inspire uh, some uh, conversation. Uh, but one of the things I, I notice about your book, Julian, is that it seems to be uh, have as its nexus uh, uh, bird watching. Uh, you're a birder, I assume, and uh, and it, not all the stories, but many of the stories are approached from mm. the side of what is this doing to our bird populations? Yeah, um, I think I, my my primary interest when I really got started with. Um, being fascinated by the natural world, birds were my the window. They were the portal into this extraordinary other place. And here are two of my absolute favorites, the Egyptian vultures. And, you know, the Egyptian vulture is now in a precarious state in the southern Balkans where I live. Um, so one of the stories I tell in the book is the remarkable efforts of local conservationists in, in Greece and in Albania, Bulgaria, North Macedonia, to protect and preserve the very last of their kind. And they are, you know, these were birds that were considered sacred in, in ancient Egyptian times because of their benefit to humanity, the way they act as effectively as kind of 
ecological recyclers of our human rubbish or you know other toxins that are in the environment through animals that have, have died um, uh, you, you have to you mention know, that were... you, you have to you have to we have to i'm sorry i apologize i have to stop you there that's okay i was not aware of this and i imagine most americans are not aware of the catastrophe involving vultures in india uh, yes can, can you address that yeah. quickly yeah of course um, India underwent what was an extraordinarily mysterious decline in o almost all of its vultures in the 1990s. And it's believed that some 40 million individual vultures died. And there are several. There's some eight or nine different vulture species. But for some of the most common vulture species in India, their numbers declined by 99.9%. So literally a number of species were almost completely annihilated. And what this meant, and this really goes to show you the profound connections between humans and the natural world, is this resulted in uh, a boom in anthrax numbers, uh, cases, boom in um, uh, rabies, because, of course, there was an explosion of feral dogs that were now feeding on cow carcasses because there was no longer the population of vultures in order to, to eat them and you know, tidy the landscape in that way. So there was this whole catastrophic avalanche of, of, of events that ensued because of the diminishment of a single um, type of bird. And it was all finally discovered to be the cause of a veterinarian um, anti-inflammatory drug called diclofenac, which isn't harmful to cattle, but it is causes death in vultures. It basically compresses their immune systems and their livers to the point where they can no longer function. And, and here we have the absolutely... Sorry, you can carry no, on, Mike. No, you go ahead. You describe. <laughs> so here we have the absolutely beautiful um, uh, great hornbill, which I write about mm. from the jungles of Northeast in India. And this for me was, you know, this chapter occurs almost at the very, very end of the book because it tells a story of possibility and of what I would describe as radical hopefulness because the tribe I spent a couple of weeks with called the Naishi live in close mm -hmm. uh, relationship with this bird. But they have traditionally hunted the hornbill and you see on the screen there that remarkable bill and on the top what's called a cask and hunted and is then utilized in traditional headdresses and all uh, male members of the tribe on special occasions wore headdresses with hornbills until one of the naishi began asking questions should we be doing this shouldn't we you know, we're now looking at hornbill numbers that are plummeting. Can we rethink our traditions? And over a lengthy period of time and, and the persistence of one person, he eventually got the elders to agree to try something. And what they tried, with the help of a wildlife organization, was fashioning facsimile or replica bills and casks out of wood, out of clay, and out of fiberglass. And now in the community that I spent time with, not a single male member of the Naishi wears a real hornbill cask on his headdress, but they proudly wear the facsimiles. And it's a story of moving from hunters to protectors because the community now actively protects the nests of great hornbills and keeps watch over them against illegal logging and various other things. So this is a story of enlarging our 
relationship with the natural world. It's about enlarging our idea of home so that it includes the more than human in its embrace. And finally, very quickly, uh, give me 30 seconds on this. I know if you need a lot more time. This is the endangered Balkan lynx, whose homeland is really in North Macedonia. This is a stamp uh, from the country. And there's only about 50 to 60 of these wild cats that exist in the entire world. And I tell the story of the people who are out there on a daily basis trying to save them and who worked incredibly hard to protect them from a planned hydropower project that would have seriously threatened their protected mountain home. And that is the beautiful Balkan lynx in front of you on the stamp. Thank you for, uh, whoops, now we've got to pop everybody back up here because, again, everything's out of order that I did today, but that's uh, that's all right. Boy, th- this has just been a remarkable conversation. We, we could um, talk for hours. Uh, we could. We, could. Uh, we should do this. We should. I should do another, have you on for the uh, the whole two hours and, and do this at some point. Um, you are, um, I like you even more than I like your book, Julian. Um, well, that's a very kind thing to say. Thank you. You, you are uh, a very, uh, you're very generous of spirit, and uh, I appreciate that. This has been a pleasure from uh, the beginning uh, to now, because you have just yeah. been cooperative in every sense of the word, and um, the the idea that we we were able to connect uh, to Greece and to New York State. Um, yes, we can't get to. I like uh, that. We can't get to Highland Park, Illinois, uh, with Peggy. But yeah, we can on the cell phone. Yeah, well, on the cell phone. Uh, but uh, everybody, all right. And I haven't, I haven't held up the copy of the book. Yes. So there yes. we go. There's the book. You Thank you. Get a copy of this. I have all the links at MikeNovak.net. You can go there. Everything, uh, including links to uh, the Wetlands Initiative, and thank you to them. And Paul Botts is the guy. Who, yes. who casually said, oh, you might want to take a look at Julian's book. It's kind of interesting. And, and uh, you know, uh, it blew me away. And, uh, and, and so did you, Julian. And their work, their work, the Wetlands Initiative work, I think, in, in Illinois and parts of Indiana, uh, is just really profoundly changing the landscapes. I think it's really a credit to the people in that organization. So, well, they're, yeah. they're doing the well kinds. Well done to the wetlands initiatives. Yeah, they're preserving the kind of spaces you write about in uh, uh, Irreplaceable. Uh, and Arthur, thank you, thank you so much for the surprise visit. Uh, I'm glad this worked Wonderful. out. Wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad I was able to hook you two up again, and uh, I hope we all get to see each other in person uh, sometime very soon in uh, 2021. Um, oh boy, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, I will. I will. And uh, I, I, and just, um, okay, just one more time, just because, just because I can. Alan, 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 out, Alan. And, you know, you talk about uh, natural areas and natural spaces and, and critters. Uh, that's, that's one of them. All right. Thank Brilliant. you so much, uh, gentlemen. Thank you, everyone. Uh, you guys have a, a wonderful Sunday. Uh, we're going to be talking about another film festival in just a second. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Please stick around. When I'm with an older tree you know, and there's just something about it that draws you to it, it's similar to the ocean, draws you to it. And when I see a big tree and I'm going to climb it, I enjoy that moment and I'll give the tree a big old hug. 
My name is Chase Ferris. I work out of the Clackamas office just outside Portland, Oregon. I've been with Bartlett Tree Experts since October of 2016, and I'm a climber. I was kind of surprised and taken back by the, the quality of equipment and the amount of effort that goes into keeping everyone safe and keeping the jobs productive and making sure that you are progressing every day. And I enjoy that because I like to learn. I like the Raptor and we, we use it quite a bit out on the West Coast. Our trees are pretty tall and the, the Raptor is great for saving energy, allowing you to get into the canopy with minimal physical exertion so that you're fresh and ready to climb and do what you need to do, you know, when you're 65, 70 feet up or higher. So at my office, I feel like you could take just about anyone, put a crew together and send them out to a job and have it be successful. And that has to do with trusting the people you work with, feeling safe around them, and knowing their strengths and weaknesses. Every tree needs a champion. You have the ability to give your soil a superpower. It's called composting. If you don't have a backyard, you need to contact Collective Resource Compost. CRC has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. They bring you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter from your kitchen, they swap it out and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a sip-saw of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root, and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serene. And welcome back to the show. Uh, boy, uh, I was going to tell you, Peggy, you, you turned the sideways a little bit uh, once while I w- had a close-up of... Julian, it looked pretty good. Why did you decide to go back to the vertical? Because I, I have to hand-hold it. Oh, to do it the other way? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, well. Uh, Otherwise, I have to sit like this. <laughs> uh, no, you don't. We can see you just fine. It looks great. That's a can great you? shot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, 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 no. You don't. Right. Oh, no, no. You should. Uh, if the whole thing comes crashing down, then we'll, we'll, you just we'll put it, it right back up. Okay, there you go. Uh, now look, you can see my my. Uh, your hippie astro. Uh, hippie hippie asters. Yeah, hippie asters, uh, or amaryllis, as the uninitiated uh, call them. Uh, they look lovely. Are they striped? Uh, the, they are like a salmon and white stripe, and I have. Four blooms open right now. Wow. Well, mine are uh, about to collapse. The ones behind me, they're they're going. They're just about done, as you can see. But uh, that's the last week uh, I'll have them. But I've got some more this that is, I will bring this in. This is actually called Dancing Queen. Oh dear. And now that ear that earbud will be. Yeah, that, that's that, right. That earworm will be there. <laughs> okay. Look who we have in the lower left corner of our screen. For you, those of you listening on the podcast, it's still the lower left corner of the screen. 
Uh, it's Karen Tyra. She's uh, president of the Evanston Environmental Association. Wait, Environmental Association. Uh, that's uh, Karen. That's my Bill Curtis impersonation. Uh, Excellent. And uh, and she is also the chair of the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. You've heard about it on our show. We've been talking about it for several weeks now, um, and it's coming up on the 19th and the 26th. So, uh, Karen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And uh, Karen and I talked. She's secluded in her basement <laughs> where she has where she has a strong signal uh, down there. And the kids, uh, are they? Uh, I hope they're not sucking up too much of the bandwidth in the house today. They aren't. I, they One of them is 15, so I'm not even sure he's up yet. So... <laughs> Well, if 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 I I can guarantee you, if I weren't doing the show, I'd be uh, kind of oh, okay. Time to get up on a Sunday. Uh, I'd be doing the same thing. Uh, well, we have a lot of people sending you hi, Karens and hearts. So you've got a, a a big fan base out there watching this morning. Wow! Wonderful. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, and I have to t- tell you, I was so absorbed. Uh, with the conversation and by the conversation with Julian, I didn't even think to look at the comments coming in in the first hour. I was, um, and I apologize to you folks because I, I there well, was, was so much I, I wanted to them. get. What? I was watching the comments. So. Okay, okay. Well, Peggy, Peggy was on the job, so uh, good for her. Um, and now, I, I, I think that uh, this morning's guest, if you got to hear. Um, Julian would be a great addition to your programs as well. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you and now that we all do it uh, uh, via inner tubes, um, he'd be fantastic. And uh, hey, I happen to know him personally. Maybe I can set you up there, uh, Karen. <laughs> that would be great. I'll be in touch. Sure. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> so here you go. One thing I did not realize is that this is your eleventh year, isn't it? It is, yes. This is the 11th year that the EEA has hosted it. Uh, I think right. the, the um, National Film Fest is um, about 13 or 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And that's what we should uh, explain, is that um, there is a National Film Fest, a uh, uh, wild and scenic film festival, and they send their product around to uh, different cities and organizations like the... Um, Evanston Environment Environmental Association. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I am I am incorrigible. Oh, you dear. cannot trust me. Uh, <laughs> Don't encourage him either. Uh, but and so what you guys do is uh, you bring in the films that you want to show out of that group of films. And as you were telling yeah. me the other day, yeah. Karen, that's not an easy decision, is it? There are not. So they the films range in in time from some are as long as two minutes and then others are, are fi- more of a feature length, 50 minutes or more. Um, but we go through about 80 to 100 of the films. We have a committee of six and we split them up and we go through about 80 films and then we try to determine the eight to 10 films for each night that will that will show that um, do a, have a range of, of appeal. So some are more celebratory of, of nature and being out in wildlife. Some are uh, 
more about um, environmental justice or indigenous rights. And uh, so we try to have a good variety of films. And the hardest part is to choose to, to pare it down to just two 75 minute long programs. Uh, was there one in particular that you had, you walked away saying, I can't believe we didn't choose that film. Uh, there was one s- several years ago that was actually, it was about um, an, an interesting con- conservation effort out, out West. Um, and uh, the whole conservation um, effort and people had their giant ATVs guarding guarding these particular preserves. Um, and it was a whole force of, of hunters and they wanted to keep it for hunting. And, you know, if you know a lot about the history of conservation of uh, Teddy Roosevelt and things like that, a lot of conservation actually came from the, the hunting and game industry to keep the, the lands pristine. So they had some game to hunt. Um, but we had, I was outvoted. We had very, very strong opinions on our board about uh, not wanting <laughs> a couple of people not wanting hunters uh, to be highlighted. So it was unfortunate because it was actually a very compelling story, and I think it was it was pretty interesting. But um, there are always some that are a little too long, and we only have seventy five minutes each night, so we don't want to take forty five of it with just one film. So um, one of the things that we have found that's appealing about our film fest is that people do get to see. Um, eight to 10 films stitched together. So they're shorter films, but they make one, one big event. So that's kind of nice. I think you, uh, you made really good point there about, about hunters. Uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. one of the, well, it comes up in Julian's book as well, that there are areas that, uh, that's how some of these lands get protected, as you mentioned, uh, is be- because there is some hunting and, and you have to have a balance somehow you have to, yeah put everything and 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 that's uh one of the things he talks about is how do how do we create this balance uh in 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 nature um i'm telling you what we'll do i do have a film trailer from uh the wild and scenic film festival let's pop this in and these are some of the films that you're likely to see uh if you sign up uh with the evanston environ environmental association uh for the I just popped that link up into the uh, live stream here. Oh, fantastic. So folks can uh, sign up right now. But let's take a look. for a revolution and we are a revolutionary people bring us to the table that's all we have once you engage in the activism you see hope everywhere
Wow. Some pretty cool stuff there. I like uh, the two in particular <laughs> that I like are the, the, that I don't know what that animal was that, that was sticking its tongue out. <laughs> uh, and then the park ranger in the boots kicking the plastic signs. In the, yeah. The one in the heels. Yeah. 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 Like, what is that? What the heck is that? Well, you gotta go to the film festival to find out. Uh, so having seen that, uh, Karen, what are the images strike you about some of the films that you're going to be showing? Uh, and, and the, the, the six, uh, well, actually you guys are talking about six that you want to highlight. One is the crown, uh, which we've talked about on this show, uh, will Acuna Robinson's, uh, thoughts on his incredible achievement made him the first African American male on record to complete the triple crown of hiking. Um, mm-hmm. there's another one, 24 leeches, wild and wool. Here we stand the church forests of Ethiopia and on the fence line a fight for clean air. Uh, but if there was a, an image that popped up that made you think, Oh, I want to tell folks, what well, what would it be? Um, there was the image of the woman that said she want she wants a voice at the table. Um, and that is actually from, um, one of our films that's called on the fence line. And it's about um, an organization that um, a community organization called Philly Thrive. It's in Philadelphia. And there is an oil refinery um, that uh, people have been sort of campaigning to have it shut down or have it clean up its its business a little bit. And then there was um, a huge explosion and fire and the refinery was shut down. And so this is this film highlights the community's efforts to keep it shut down and have it uh, remain closed. And what strikes me about that film is it's pretty similar to what's going on in Chicago right now on the South side where they um, would like the metal recycling plant uh, placed there. General and then of course, the community general iron, the community that does not really want that there. And uh, I think what's great is it's about the community, the people from the community have come together and they are the ones who are, um, they are the ones who are getting sick. They are, of course, not the ones who are benefiting uh, financially from the industry. And so, um, you know, it's again, as we talked about, there has to be that balance. We all want these these um, industries and we want, you know, we need our oil to, to power our lives right now. And, uh, but, you know, at the expense of, of these communities that typically do not get to have a say. And so it's, it's a, uh, it's a compelling film about that. And that's actually what we call one of our anchor films. It's our, it's about 24 minutes long. So it's one of the longer films in the film fest. I would, I would argue that, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you talk about balance. I would argue that the, the balance has been too far over to one side for far too long. There's been very little social justice, environmental justice. Uh, the scales have been tipped in, in favor of the fossil fuel industry for too long. And, and if we're going to achieve that balance now, it's got to come back the other way. Uh, and, and that's, what's happening. Another thing going on in Philadelphia, uh, ironically is that there are a lot of incinerators there. Um, and, um, things that you think are being recycled are being burned instead. That is a, a a crucial, crucial problem uh, throughout the world. Um, I saw a story on it just, recently and um so uh yeah there's a lot of social justice that needs to happen in philadelphia but it needs to happen in chicago too as we've talked about 
uh, on yeah. on this program and throughout uh, the United States. Um, have, and that some- is a, that's on our on the twenty sixth. So the two nights are different. So the films on the nineteenth are different from the films on the twenty sixth. So you can buy your tickets for either one, and the um, the money goes and uh, helps the EEA. We're an environmental education and awareness not for profit. So we support environmental education and awareness throughout the city of Evanston and our community. And uh, one of the ways we do that is support the Evanston Ecology Center, which is the city's mm-hmm. the city's nature center in Evanston. Um, and we support some other on initiatives for, on McCormick, yes. And um, and uh, we provide scholarships as well for the summer camps. So they have specialty science and nature camps, and um, and we provide scholarships for uh, people who otherwise would not be able to attend the camps, which is kind of cool. One of the things uh, that you guys mentioned when uh, you were writing to us was going virtual this year. That gives you the opportunity to go worldwide, really, um, in a way that you couldn't before. You, uh, I'm not sure it was you or uh, your colleague who wrote to me and said that we used to fill up these theaters and we'd have, you know, 180 people in a theater, but now we can have 10 times that many if we want yeah. online. So we had been um, hesitant in years past to do um, things like the Mike Novak show. And, and uh, because by the time the show airs, we had almost always sold out of our mm-hmm. film fest because our, our venue only holds 200 people. So, um, this year we're able to take as many as will come. So that's exciting about that. I mean, it's a shame that we're not in person again still, but, <laughs> um, but it, but it's expanded uh, your audience it, so much. It yeah. has. And people who, who know the EEA, but have moved on and, uh, people who were, you know, I know someone who was a summer camp counselor at the ecology center and she's out in Colorado. And so she would never able to come to the film fest, but she will be able to this year. And, and then we get to, um, also expand who gets to see these films and the South. Yuba River Conservation League, or Circle, is the one is uh, the organization that puts on the National Wild and Scenic Film Fest. And being one of uh, what they call our on-tour sites for the Chicagoland area, we get to show these films to to a wider audience for them, but certainly a wider audience for us as well. So that is a good part of being virtual, and everybody can be nice and you know cozy in their jammies and and watching the films. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, and and you encourage families to partake, uh, participate, and partake of of the films as well, and and that's yeah. a really good way to to do some good, really, and be yeah. educated about our fragile planet uh, by sitting sitting down with your family and watching some of these wonderful films. We do, and we do. We try to include films that um, have some families in it, have some kids in it, or have some mm-hmm. kids doing some conservation. So, um, each of the nights, we do have one of those films, uh, some films that focus on kids. The Twenty Four Leeches is actually narrated by a ten-year-old boy, and it is a it is a father's film about the celebration of his his uh, adventure partner. Um, and and the need to uh, have the kids learn this and and have these outdoor experiences and they're lucky enough to be able to have these outdoor experiences. Um, and it's also, you know, as a mom, I think it's wonderful because that film is also 
such a celebration of um, of the awe that the that parents have of watching their kids learn something that you value and how they interpret that and and put that out in the world as well. So that's kind of um, that's kind of a beautiful film. It does all that in ten minutes. <laughs> uh, 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 wow, that's a... <laughs> well, and and I I think that's a good point too of what you talked about ten minute film, seven minute film. These are all short, so to have the family together, especially with younger children, there's a lot they're going to learn in a small amount of time and keep their attention, as opposed to a ninety minute showing. Yes, and we've all been online for a year now, so you know there are some yeah. things that we're more comfortable with, and there's a bit of fatigue with that, I think, as well. So it's nice to have mm -hmm. these these shorter films, um, and they are all beautiful and visually compelling. So I think that that is uh, is also uh, a good thing to have too. And then there yeah. are um, kids working in conservation in one of our um, films on the 26th called "If We Take Care of the." Land, it will take care of us. Um, and that mm -hmm. is uh, about uh, a group of kids that do some conservation work. So just as Julian Hoffman had actually been talking about earlier in the show, we, uh, we get to see the kids um, have this experience of, of being outside and being safe outside and, and learning something and actually having a, feel that, uh, a feeling that they are having a part in it, having an effect on it, a, a, positive effect on it and being able to do something. And, you know, maybe they'll, there, someone in that class will become a scientist. Someone in that class will become, um, you know, an advocate for, for the environment. And I think that's important. So that's, uh, you mentioned the, that film also on the 26th. What on the 19th are you looking forward to? Um, uh, I, the 19th has um, quite a, quite a few good films. Um, and the crown is actually one that's actually, that is pretty interesting. Um, the the triple crown of of uh, hiking is is quite an achievement for anybody. Um, and then we have uh, the first African American person to to do it. And uh, and it's interesting that we're you know it's twenty nineteen or uh, I think was when the film was filmed. Most of these were filmed before the pandemic, so. Um, the, uh, you know, but it's 20, 2019 and we're still having the first African-American person to do this and the first African-American person to do this. And even in conservation, um, uh, you know, we still are, are not seeing a full representation that we would all like to see. Um, so I, I like that one a lot. Um, and then um, there is also one, um, that is called Wild and Wool. And that is an interesting, um, again, visually it's beautiful, but it's interesting because it's, um, it's a film about the effect that um, a bacteria that can live in um, domestic sheep and doesn't hurt them actually um, has a, a disastrous effect on the populations of bighorn sheep. And so the grazing that goes up into the mountains and, uh, and, has you know more and more instances of interactions between the domestic and the wild uh, sheep uh, can kill off all the lambs. They get pneumonia and they get so there are some um, 
hard to watch little clips in that. So uh, because you, you see the animals and they're not well. Um, and then uh, you see that the population, some of the populations aren't doing well and some are. But it's also, again, we try to have some films of uh, the films be inspirational as well as informational. So they're not big downers. So this is also a film about the scientists that are trying to do the research to figure out how they can um, either prevent the spread from one of the, from the domestic population to the wild population or um, possibly um, give antibiotics to the domestic population so they can't spread it. And, and so it's about, you know, without a conclusion like, you know, yay, we figured it all out and it's all over. Not every film is like that, but um, yeah. it's about the, <laughs> the efforts to do so, so that at least we know that, you know, they're working on it. And so it's uh, hopeful in that way. Well, Again. you know, you bring up a really good point, and we have just like a minute left, um, that your job is, is to educate, also to entertain. Uh, it's also fundraising. Uh, you yes. want to bring families in, and you're an environmental organization. A lot of environmentalism is not pretty, and it doesn't always have a happy ending. And that must be a really tough thing to to have in the back of your head as you're making decisions about films. It is. It, it can be tough because there are a lot of the films that, um, you know, uh, you think, oh, everyone should know this and everyone needs to learn about this. And, um, but that's also why we, we weave in some of these that are just celebrations of, of the beauty of nature or celebrations of, of um, a community coming together and actually making a change for the health of their community and the health of the environment in their community as well as the people. Um, and so that, that is a nice balance we try to strike. You want it to be serious. You don't want, you, you want mm -hmm. to give the actual information. Um, and, uh, but, and you want people to have a sense of hope or a sense of a, a call to action. So if they feel like they can do something to help, then, then hopefully they will. Well, uh, folks can uh, be part of the Wild and Scenic Film Festival, March 19th, March 26th. Uh, the program does not repeat, as we mentioned, so you're going to see something different each night. Um, virtual doors open at 6.30. The films start at 7. It's $10 for individuals, $18 for a group of two or more. And, of course, you're on the honor system. Uh, but it, come on, yeah. folks. Or, it's, or, or $25 with an extra gift to the... Right. You can do uh, 20. Do that. Do the and 20. And you have, um, and when you buy your ticket, you have access to those films again. So you can come to seven, from seven to nine or, um, and you can also watch those films for another 24 hours. Your, oh, good. your link is good for another 24 hours. So if you can't make it Friday night, you can still buy your ticket and watch it Saturday morning. Anyway. Right. As you mentioned, there's a religious holiday Excellent. on one of the uh, uh, Fridays, right? Yeah, so we know that we're this, this time of year. There's um, one of the one of the film fests is the first night of Passover. The rest of the week is, is uh, some varying spring breaks, and so people may or may not be uh, traveling um, for that. And uh, so you have access to that for another 24 hours, but you have to buy your ticket before the event. All right, uh, Karen Tyra from the. Evanston Environmental Association. 
Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and I'm so glad. See, now you have a reason to actually be on the show since it's all virtual <laughs> and you haven't sold out of everything yet. And folks, right, go, right. <laughs> go to my website, MikeNovak.net. All of the links are there. It's easy. Um, it's supporting a great organization. And um, you're going to learn a lot. You'll be inspired. Yeah, you might have a little twinge of conscience which is also not a bad thing which is good for you and yeah. we can yeah. discuss with the family yes right exactly there's the topic we're going to have a little discussion about this afterward kids all right uh, uh karen thank you so much uh and uh good thank luck you and... Both so much. all right take care thank it's you. the mike novak mike novak show with peggy malecki meteorologist rick DeMaio. we hope is next you can help slow climate change in 2021 by composting. And you don't even need a backyard. By composting communally in multi-unit buildings across Chicagoland, Collective Resource Compost has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. CRC brings you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter, they swap it out, and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. At Sitka Salmon Shares, we take pride in being a seafood company that's a little different. In fact, 10 seasons ago, our motto was we do salmon differently. Nowadays, we harvest 15 species of wild-caught Alaskan fish, but still call ourselves Sitka Salmon Shares because, well, we're a little different. Our difference starts with our fleet of fishermen Hello. who own a slice of the company mm. and are paid above industry average. They deliver fish to our docks in about half the time as other fishermen, which means higher quality of fish for you. And we never buy our fish from large processors where we don't know how each fish was caught or handled, like most other companies do. Another difference is our fish plant, which we own too. Our plant freezes fish about twice as cold and twice as fast as the other guys. This produces unparalleled quality at a cellular level. Ooh. Our difference extends to you too. By joining our community, you band together with thousands of other people who want to make a difference in the way that their food is produced. This allows our fishermen to harvest fish just for you, with the respect, thought, and care that the fish, the ocean, and you deserve. So, be a little different. Join us at SitkaSalmonShares.com. At this time of year, we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants, so help them thrive. The plants you're viewing were treated with Leafzyme, a foliage spray designed to activate beneficial microbes already present on the leaves. A spritz every few weeks promotes growth-enhancing microorganisms that process dust and other particles into nutrition that indoor plants can absorb through their leaves for beautiful and vigorous growth. Go to blazing-star.com and check out their BioGarden line for home gardeners. And we have in the wings. That's the uh, closest thing to a clip that you're going to get. That's Let's, in the wings. Yeah, that's well, no. This guy is in the wings. Meteorologist. There he is. And author Rick DeMaio. And, <laughs> yeah. and he is he is heading out in 15 minutes. So all right. He just texted me. So okay, where where are you off to, dude? So when when does when does the attack of the fifty foot woman come into that um, series of films, there, guys? <laughs> oh God, uh, I don't think it's going to be there. Oh, oh dear. Yeah, so, but, but that's what happens. When, that's what happens when you don't trust science, right? The whole the whole 
the whole thing behind all those weird movies back in the fifties, <laughs> like you know the movie mm-hmm. Them with the ants flying around, right? Uh, was all about what happens when we don't pay attention to um, you know nuclear reactions gone wild. <laughs> but the attack well, of the woman is my favorite. Yeah, but you know part of it was also we can't trust the science because they're just going to do crazy things. So you know they're going to turn. Yeah create giant ants well, we, we, and we spiders we trust the people who present the science that's different. uh it it might be a little bit but you know you're not going to see attack of the uh 50 foot woman on at uh, any of those festivals all right uh-oh he's frozen a little bit uh rick, turn off your video there rick if you can now uh, he might need to uh log in again i think uh he'll probably Boy, I hope he pops up because uh, what he's going to tell us about, I think, uh, this morning, he needs to go into the room that's closer to the router. That's what he needs to do. Uh, I think we're having a tech morning. I think he needs to reboot the router. I've been I had uh, Julian do that. And 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 um, no, I'm sorry, uh, Arthur uh, was in New York and we were doing a test and it was it was breaking up a little bit. And uh, I'll just pop Rick out of there so, uh, uh, right now. Well, I think what messed up my camera was rebooting my cam- rebooting my computer right before the show because it seems to have just forgotten I own a camera built into my laptop. So, oh, dear. Okay. Um, but uh, there's a secret, and I think I've told folks, uh, if you're doing these Zoom conferences and so forth and you're getting glitching problems, uh, reboot your router just before you do something like that. We have found that it mm-hmm. really... It's like any electronic device. It really likes every now and then it needs to <laughs> take a break uh, and uh, and reset. So um, it needs some encouragement. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, Rick gets back. Oh, there he is. Back here. There he is. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where I got to get close to the router, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what were you just saying, Mike? <laughs> I don't know. I say it here and it comes out there. I don't know yep. how that works. Uh, so uh, I guess we're glad we're not in Denver today. What are you talking about? I love snow. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but it's March. I mean, I'm, I've am i already been out to the driving range once, okay? I know. The river, you know the river was dyed green. We're beyond snow. You know what? Don't you think it, it's kind of come early this year, Peg? Yeah. I, I, you know, I know you were addressing her, but uh, I was thinking about that the other day. It makes me a little nervous. Uh, my crocuses are coming. I mean, they're they're right kind of on schedule, but I don't want it mm-hmm. to be 50 and 60 degrees every day. If it's 40, I'm happy. I, I think that's probably good. And that's what it looks like we're going to do for the next few days is kind of in the 40s. Oh, yeah. I mean, the one thing about Colorado is when they get – big snows, we usually get, you know, the remnants of their system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it's going to be coming through um, late tonight into early tomorrow morning with a lot of evaporative cooling on the front side of it, and people hear that term and they go, why is that an important part of this forecast? Because if you look outside right now, um, there's no lower clouds. There's no stratocumulus clouds. There's no cumulus clouds, which means the lower part of the atmosphere is very dry. And if you've also noticed, if you've been outside, there's a stiff north wind, and that wind has kind of come in from the northeast at about 15 to 20 miles per hour. So our dew point temperature, was, which is the actual measure of moisture in the atmosphere, 
will eventually get down into the teens later on tonight into tomorrow morning. So there's going to be a layer of air from the surface up to about almost four to 5,000 feet, which is going to be very dry. And when you start to precipitate into that, even from an atmosphere that's, say, 34, 35 degrees Fahrenheit, when you precipitate into that drier air, the drier air actually takes the heat out of the raindrop or the snowflake, and it cools it down. So just like when you step outside after you take a, you know, a shower or you went for a swim or you know, a dip in the lake and the wind is blowing, you feel cool because the moisture is being pulled off your body. So it's going to happen tomorrow morning as a classic example of the lower part of the atmosphere being colder than the atmosphere above and because it's coming through late at night into tomorrow morning. The leading edge of the precipitation shield is actually going to be changing over from a little bit of wet snow to like maybe some dry snow and maybe a little bit of sleep, but I'm not thinking this is going to be a big sleet event. It could be a little bit of sleep, but not a lot. It's definitely not going to be freezing rain. Freezing rain, you need the air temperature at the surface to be well below freezing. So it's not going to be that. But because it's coming through on the northern edge early in the morning with a very dry atmosphere, um, I'm thinking the leading edge of this is going to be basically all snow. And depending ah. on how much comes down um, and how fast comes down at a certain time of the day, uh, this time tomorrow morning, everything is going to be white. <laughs> it is. I mean, the trees are going to probably have, you know, a couple of inches of clumpy white uh, or clumpy wet snow. It snows always white, uh, maybe about an inch <laughs> or two. See, I caught myself there. Um, uh, no, then, it gets to be gets to be gray after a while. <laughs> it gets to be yeah. gray very quickly this time of year. So, um, you know, it's amazing. We got to 69 on Tuesday, or was it Wednesday? I forget. Tuesday. Which, which day we were out? Tuesday. Tuesday, yeah. Because um, uh, Wednesday, Wednesday was uh, the winds, and that's when I was trying to hit golf balls into a 30-mile-an-hour wind. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had, bottom, bottom line is we had two days where it hit 69 degrees. Both one day tied the record, one day was short of the record, but the second day when it was short of the record, our overnight low was 57. The, wow. the previous wow. coldest or the previous warmest overnight low was 52. So I believe it was the 10th of March when that happened. So that would have been Wednesday. Um, that was the warmest 10th of March ever in the history of Chicago because of the overnight low and the afternoon high temperature. So when you average those out, you go back to all the previous 145 March 10th that we had. That was the warmest one, which is really remarkable considering three weeks before that we had as much snow on the ground as we did back in 1979. It would be interesting to go back and see, and I haven't done this yet, when we actually lost all the snow from that 1979 winter. I got to go back and look at that. And I think I can probably find out very quickly from, uh, from a reliable source when that occurred. But it's, it's really amazing how fast we lost the snow. And I predicted this almost a month ago that we were not going to get into any flooding type of scenarios because the atmosphere just didn't have that setup for you know, heavy rains. And even though the thing coming through tomorrow – um, is going to give us probably a couple of inches of wet snow. By and large, most of it will be about maybe three-tenths, maybe four-tenths of an inch of liquid. And then there's another one coming through on Wednesday. So we have two ones, two snows event coming, two snow events coming through this week, both on the light side. But again, you know, kind of the, a reminder that it's still March and it's still the Midwest. And you don't really get to be real spring around here until about the middle of April, if that. 
No, and let's and, not forget. And it'll be gone quickly, though. It, oh. It'll be gone quickly, you're right. Yeah, because things have warmed up. The ground's warmed up somewhat. Uh, I stuck a thermometer in the ground in my backyard, uh, 50 degrees. Uh, wow, I, that's I was, pretty good. I was surprised at how warm that's right. I forgot the, I was going to do that. I'll the soil know. was. Um, and uh, now that'll it'll fluctuate a little bit, but that that was that was pretty warm. And let's not forget, and we've talked about it on the show because we had two Aprils in a row where we got significant snow. Wow. <laughs> and it's only the, the last, middle, the last two, right? The last two Aprils, we've had more snow than we had in December. And it was, you go back and you look at the event back in 20, um, 2019, and that was a classic case of evaporative cooling where the leading edge of the snow just kept getting literally dried out by the dry air coming in. And you were snowing like crazy, even though it was like 33 or 34 degrees. Because the snow, mm-hmm. when it comes down heavier, it actually pulls the cool air from, say, three or 4,000 feet down to the ground. And it's amazing. As soon as the rate of snow begins to drop off, you go back to like a snow mix with a little bit of rain and the air temperature goes up. So yeah. uh, these are all, you know, kind of lessons in all the things that you learned as a meteorologist, and they're basically all science experiment, science experiments right in front yeah. of our eyes. And if I recall correctly, that 2019 snow, the week before was Easter, and it was close to 70 because we did right. a remote outside, and we were sitting there in sunglasses. Right. It was it was 70 before the snow. Isn't that right, Peg? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was actually warmer before we had the snow. So, again, you can get that this time of year. Now, um, it's important to note that even though they're getting heavy snow out in Colorado and Wyoming, they need this. Up until yeah. yesterday, mm-hmm. snow, Denver had only 26 inches of snow for the season. That's about half of what they normally get. Um, and most of what they got basically dried up and evaporated. If you look at one of the maps that I sent you, it's incredible how much of the southwest is under drought and these La Nina patterns don't end well for the desert southwest or the southern Rockies they're very very dry patterns you get the split jet stream I kind of sent that map to you as well you'll get systems coming in through southern New Mexico and Texas and they'll go kind of like over the top Um, so even though they're getting snow today uh, trust me they need every drop of it the problem though is it's not going to make it all the way over the continental divide in the area where they really need it. So this is the one way that Denver, Cheyenne, Colorado Springs gets their heavy snow. The the moisture literally comes up straight out of the Gulf of Mexico, makes the left turn, and it kind of goes upslope into the mountains there. The problem with yesterday's event was it was twofold. You had snow in the mountains, and then you had very, very heavy rainfall, including severe thunderstorms, 17 reports of tornadoes, one of them a wedge tornado in the Texas panhandle. And what happens is numerical models two, three days in advance, even 12 hours in advance, can't predict the secondary circulations which produce those thunderstorms. But when they occur, it blocks the moisture from going west. So it's almost like putting up a gate. And instead of getting maybe one to two inches of moisture in the atmosphere, you're down to like maybe an inch to maybe an inch and a quarter. So when you get big thunderstorms in Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, Panhandle, it shuts down the heavy snow for Colorado, and that's wow. exactly what we saw yesterday. But the good news is the rain that did fall in those areas of western Kansas and eastern Colorado where they have huge amounts of wheat, um, they got some decent precipitation. 
However, you can see much of that area. You know, you think about it, that's only five states. But if you take that same area, Mike, and you move it over the Ohio Valley, you're talking 10 states. That is an incredibly large area. Um, and again, the population uh, increases in that region between Las Vegas and Phoenix and Tucson, where they're getting their electricity from. The source of water is the Colorado River, which hasn't been doing too well the last couple of years. And you can see in the map that uh, I was able to pop up uh, the western part of Colorado. Come, wow. In very yeah. heavy drought. Uh, yeah. Utah is slammed. Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. Yeah. The whole four Nevada, corners. Nevada, I guess. Yeah. yeah, this is... This is, a, this is about as bad as it gets at the end of the winter season, and you're going to see this area expand into the springtime and then also in the summer. Wow. So as we finish up here, these are some of the things that some of the students are going to be talking about uh, this week. Uh, it's the Loyola University Annual Climate Change Conference. Again, they're going to be meeting virtual. Um, and even though I've done virtual conferences before, um, these kids seem to know how to pull it off. So that starts up uh, tomorrow. It'll go through um, Thursday, and Jerome McDonald, previous from previously from WBZ, will be running one of the panels, uh, I believe, on Wednesday. And I sent you a link to that. You can share it with your listeners, um, and hopefully they can sign up virtually as well. But one of the things that the students will be doing, um, as well as in my class, we actually do our presentations Wednesday night on climate change in national parks, which is how national parks, um, from a standpoint of the states and the federal jurisdictions, um, end up providing some sort of adaptation or mitigation efforts to reduce the impact of climate change, not only on the state, but also on the park. In other words, if you go out to like Jackson Hole, Wyoming, only 3% of that land is private. The rest of it is basically all federal and state owned. So if anything needs to be done, it has to go through the government. It, it, it's, it's really hard for yeah. grassroots efforts and private you know, citizens to make a difference when you get it into the Western United States. Here, it's a little bit easier. We kind of own our own land. Out there, it's mm-hmm. very, very different. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at the... Oh, oh go ahead, Peggy. I was going to say, we're, I'm just looking at the clock, and I know, Rick, you said you had to leave a little earlier. So um, do we have a forecast? Yeah. So the forecast then... A um, little bit of rain later on tonight, but much of the day just basically dry. So so cloudy today, temperatures up to about 40 degrees, 45, overnight low right around 35 to 40. By this time tomorrow, easily one to two inches of snow on the ground. Everything's going to go white. Uh, it'll be a heavy, wet snow. Main roads should probably be okay. There's still probably a lot of residual salt left over from the event three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Think about it. We have not had much rain. In no. literally, right. I, I think, what are we going on? So let's see, 14 plus 12, no, plus 8. We're going on 22 days now, 22 days since that snow that we had on that Sunday, 22 days where we've had less than, get this, a tenth of, of an inch of precipitation. That's it. I mean, wow. we literally went dry. So a lot of the roads you'll see tomorrow will probably begin to show the remains of the salt still from that snow event from three and a half, four weeks ago. Yeah, I'm, 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 yeah. It'll, it'll happen. And then again, as Peg was alluding to the forecast, um, somewhat dry on Tuesday, but then another rain and snow system comes through on Wednesday. This time next week, though, on next Sunday, yeah. mid-60s. So it's going to warm up very, very fast. 
Really? All right. Uh, and, and will it stay, or is, are we uh, in a uh, uh, a pattern where things are going to change? A it's bit? March. I think we're in a pattern uh, where things are going to change. Yeah. If we get if we get sixty degrees next week, um, it may be for two days. But in this highly variable pattern right now, which is what you typically get at the end of a La Nina, there there really isn't any push to wetness, dryness. Warmth or cold, just highly variable. You know what? Which I'll take because I don't want a repeat of the last two springs, which were phenomenally wet. They they really were. But I I, I yeah. think uh, you hit the nail on the head when you said, and I and I'll bet a lot of people haven't noticed that we have not had very much rain. Um, we had that snow, uh, but uh, I, I know because where it, it uh, uh, melted out in front, where I have the southern mm-hmm. exposure, it's gotten pretty dry out there. Really dry. Yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. As I mentioned, it's been it's been and three it's been weeks sunny. since our last. It's been very yeah very sunny yeah very sunny and dry start to March, which is rare. But um, as we know, that can change in an instant, and I'll do that tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we'll post uh, something about the uh, the conference at Loyola. I guess uh, I see Lo- Loyola celebrating a hundred and fiftieth anniversary celebration, and uh, among the things at the environmental conference. Uh, uh, the climate crisis, artist platform for climate advocacy, indigenous youth seeking truth and justice, conversations with youth climate activists, um, and uh, and sustainability as the new normal on campus. Uh, so uh, the one thing I would say is let folks be able to take their own coffee cups to the uh, <laughs> to to the to the uh, to the the cafeteria there. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Rick, we'll let you go. Thank you so much, and thanks for moving into you, the uh, other room. We 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 appreciate that. We we will yeah. let you go. Take care. <laughs> bye bye. All right. Uh, so, I guess that sort of uh, wraps it up. Shall we wrap up early? Have you gotten anything uh, that you wanted to add? Any of the comments that we need to? Uh... Um, Kathleen actually made a comment. If I can find it back here again. Um, oh. She commented that a black woman named Elise Walker also completed the hiking triple crown a couple of years before the man in the movie. No, no, actually. Yes. That doesn't surprise me. Um, it's, it's, if, if a group is going to be ignored, it's going to be black women. Basically, this is, uh, this is so according to the script of the way we write our history. Uh, thank you, Kathleen, for, that information how far back uh, uh, oh yeah she says yeah mm-hmm. um but we have a lot of people planning to watch from iowa um somebody says happy pie day i didn't realize it was pie day uh well that was uh yeah that's right 314 yeah uh i i forgot about uh, pie day so happy pie day to everybody there we go um, so maybe we'll just uh, real quick toss out uh, Wild and Scenic Film Fest. You can go to evanstonenvironment.org slash filmfest to sign up for that. And you will not see this. Shut up, Wesley. Okay. Uh, just let Good. you know. Uh, but Good, yeah. uh, also let's remind folks uh, about CCGA next Saturday uh, yes. as well. Go to chicagocommunitygardens.org slash conference to sign up. It's Saturday, March 20th, 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. And I think 12.30 is when we will be on. Um, Yeah, around, is it 12.30 or 1.30? 12? 
thought it was twelve thirty lunchtime. It, we'll we'll, we'll have it up on Facebook during the week. Yeah, but Peggy and I will be there, and uh, w- what we want to tell you is get your gardens ready for the twenty twenty one. Uh, Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards 62nd Garden Video Challenge. And this year, we want you to take photos and videos of your spring garden. We're going to divide it into two categories. There's going to be, well, uh, let me put it as two. All right. Two different sessions, two different two different challenges. There'll be a um, a May June challenge, right, and, and then a July August challenge. A July August challenge, uh, because what we do is we separate it into. Uh, we learned this as we were going along last year, <laughs> that uh, uh, in terms of people who submit, we have uh, uh, individuals, we have the residential section, but we also then have the institutional session, uh, uh, and wh- whether you're uh, a uh, a school or a business, or some other kind of institution. That goes yeah. into the institutional. But if you have a your own backyard and your own things mm-hmm. going on there, uh, you can win in that category as well. And one of the things we did, and, and, and I want to stress this again, it was a, um, uh, a viewer's choice kind of uh, people's choice award. It was, it was based on the number of hits you got so that we weren't out there saying hey this is the best video this is not the best video we just uh decided that that was the best way for for us to do that so there you go uh i think we're ready to uh to get out of here uh thanks to uh first of all technology for allowing us to do this <laughs> boy you, you, it turned out turned out pretty well when you turn the phone sideways uh, but Julian Hoffman, uh, who's written the wonderful book, Irreplaceable, which everybody should get a copy of, uh, and uh, Arthur Melville Pearson, who joined in there to sucker punch Julian, uh, Karen Tyra from the Evanston Environmental Association and the Wild and Scenic Film Festival, Rick DeMaio, Kathleen Thompson, uh, Legata, Basil, Basil. Until next time, go green or go home. I can't find this. It's here. There's too many things. Oh, well. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Oh, and I, I didn't even get the uh, the final. Uh, oh, no, no, no. We can't, we can't go away, even though we're still rolling. Okay. Yep, we are. We are. We are still rolling. There we go. I'm going to pop this up. The whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.